are you 100% sure that if you died today, you would go to heaven? Are you 100% sure if you died right now, you would go to heaven? That is a question that I either heard asked or asked myself hundreds if not thousands of times growing up. Every Monday night we had Monday night visitation and my father would take us out into the community along with our church and we would knock on people's doors in this community and we would ask them that question. Are you 100% sure if you died today, you'd go to heaven? It raised a legitimate question. Can we or should we have assurance of our salvation? Now in this city, we primarily receive responses on a spectrum between two very different views of this, of our security and salvation. One was absolute certainty in the praying of a prayer or the profession of faith at a specific time in history. And because of that, there was no way that these people could ever go to hell. They treated it like a vaccine, like they got vaccinated against hell as a one-time thing and then for the rest of their life it didn't matter. They were vaccinated against hell. Now maybe that's a bad example in 2019 because there's a lot of negative connotations of vaccines. So maybe we should think of it as an eternal essential oil that they put on. <laughs> they rub some... Sorry. They rub some... Uh, probably as insurance. They think of it as, as hell insurance. They got hell insurance at, at some point by, by praying a prayer or making a statement of faith or being baptized. And because of that one thing in the past, they feel there's no way they can go to hell. Now on the other end of the extreme, we, we had people who genuinely believed that they had been saved by faith in Jesus, but that their salvation was still dependent upon themselves. They were still trusting in their good works as the decisive means of their security. They would say, yes, I was saved, but I live a moral life in order to go to heaven. I've done more good than bad. If you press them about why they felt that they were sure of heaven, they would say things like, I'm a good person. I love my family. I sometimes go to church. I obey the law. They may have been saved by faith, but they earned their security. Now, these are two very wrong conclusions to come to in regard to our salvation. But they raise again an important question. Can or should we be sure of our salvation? And this morning I want to tell you if you struggle with the assurance, it's okay. You're not in a class of Christians by yourselves. If you're struggling with guilt or shame or fear, if you're struggling with assurance, every Christian struggles with assurance. This message is for all of us this morning, but for those of you who are specifically struggling with assurance, for whatever reason, this text should bring you great comfort. So again, is assurance of salvation a biblical concept? Should we be certain of our justification? Are there people who are justified who will not be glorified? And again, as Phil said, this is a serious question that has divided Christians for centuries. We're going to look at Scripture today to see if Scripture will give us a clear answer. We're going to be in Romans 8, but just for a moment I'm going to 
review some earlier context in Romans. So in Romans 1, Paul lays out, 1 through 3, Paul lays out the ground of mankind's guilt. So in Romans 1, we see that God has revealed himself to the Gentiles through nature and through their conscience, and they have rejected God. In Romans 2, we see that the Jews were given the law, but they could not uphold it. And in judging the Gentiles for breaking the same law, they condemned themselves. Then in Romans 3, we see Paul establishing the guilt of all mankind, both Jews and Gentiles. What then? Are we Jews any better off? Not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. Every human is born guilty of sinning against God. Therefore, every human is responsible for their rebellion against God and deserves the wrath of God. Paul goes on in Romans to teach us the gospel, that God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to live the sinless life that we could not, and then He died the death that we deserved and absorbed the wrath of God for all believers. Paul teaches us that we are saved by faith in this gospel. So, let's go to Romans 8. The verses we're going to be looking at this morning come immediately after one of the most well-known verses in the Bible. Look with me at Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Well, this is an amazing promise. Like, I don't think we could come up with a, a more comforting promise if we tried. Now, this promise is not for everyone, but to those whom it is given, namely those who are justified, it is a precious promise. The promise is that all things, or everything that happens, all that happens in the life of the redeemed child of God is it ordained by God for our eternal good and His infinite glory. Could anything bring more hope to the darkest hours of our lives? Even in the cancer or the death of loved ones or the loss of a job, all these things are being orchestrated by God for our eternal good and His infinite glory. And just quickly, we need to say, you know, this, is, this good is not necessarily the healing of the cancer or the provision of a job, but that in the, in the loss of the job or in the cancer, God is using those things to make you more like Christ. That's the good. Now, we love this promise in Romans 8.28, and we should love it and cherish it and proclaim it. But, what's the basis of this promise? What's the ground of this wonderful, overarching promise to believers? How do we know that God works all things in the believer's life for their eternal good and His infinite glory? Verse 29 and 30 of Romans 8 are the foundation or the grounds for this promise in Romans 8.28. And this is our text for this morning. Read it with me. Romans 8, 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Okay, so these, these verses teach doctrines that have caused significant controversy and can cause angst in the church. 
This morning, I want to tell you that if these verses are understood for what they really are saying about believers, there is no reason for angst. These verses should be as precious to us as Romans 8.28. You cannot love the promise of Romans 8.28 without loving the truth of Romans 8.29 and 30. These verses should not give us angst. They should fill us with comfort and joy and gratitude for our great God. So in Romans 8.29 and 30, we're going to see five reasons for assurance from eternity past to eternity future. First, God foreknew His children. Starting in verse 29, for those whom He foreknew. What does foreknew mean? Two general schools of thought here regarding this word. One is that God looked down into eternity, looked down into human history, and saw those humans who would independently choose to follow Him. He saw our independent choice to follow Him, and based on our choice in the future, He determined the destiny of believers. So God's foreknowledge in this verse, under that school of thought, would simply mean an an informational knowledge about future events. It's one thought. The other is that God's foreknowing is more than just mere foresight. Let's look at the scripture for help understanding this word. Now some aspects of that first definition are absolutely true. Like God does see the future, just like he sees the past. And the present, God is omniscient. He can see all those who will believe on Him and who will not. But is that all there is to God's foreknowing of believers? We're going to look at several passages to try to understand this this idea of foreknowing. The first is Romans 11.1. I ask then, has God rejected His people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. Whom He foreknew. What does this word mean here in this verse? It means that God foreknew Israel. So does that mean that God just simply looked down into the future and saw Israel's faithfulness in choosing Him over idols and other gods? And on that basis, He foreknew them? Well, no, on multiple levels we know that's not true. First of all, Israel was not faithful at all. Much of the Old Testament is the rebellion of Israel against God and God judging them for their rebellion. We see it over and over and over again. Israel continually rebelling against God. Secondly, and more importantly, God says throughout the Old New Testament that He chose Israel to be His people on the basis of His sovereign will. God predetermined His choice to enter into an intimate relationship with Abraham and Israel. God loved Israel before Israel existed, when there was nothing good about Israel. Next passage is Genesis 18. It will be on the screen here. You don't have to turn. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation? And all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him 
that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. The Hebrew word here in this verse, in verse 19, is literally translated chosen, but it's also literally translated known. Like if you have a King James Version, the word is known. We see God chose Abraham before Abraham had done anything to earn God's favor. God's knowing of Abraham and Israel is synonymous with his choosing of Abraham and Israel. And then Amos 3.2, God speaking to Israel says, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. Does God only possess future knowledge about Israel and not the other nations? No. God knows the future of all nations. The word know here means that God had chosen to enter into an intimate and special relationship with Israel. God chose to love Israel, to bring Israel to himself and to keep them. John Murray, the early 20th century theologian on this term, no. No is used, in a sense, practically synonymous with love. Those whom he foreknows is therefore virtually equivalent to whom he foreloved. Foreknowledge is sovereign, distinguishing love. It is virtually the same as to set your affection on and choose for your own. It is electing love. So the meaning of this first act of God in this verse is that God foreknows His own people in the sense that He chooses and loves them and cares for them. God foreknew or foreloved or forechose each and every one of us who are believers here this morning before the foundation of the world before we had anything to offer and knowing full well all of our sinful failures and rebellion. This reality should fill us with awe-filled gratitude. Because you see, God's choosing is not like I would choose a basketball team, right? Like if I were choosing a basketball team, I would look out at the players and say, okay, this guy, he looks like he could score a lot of baskets, I'm going to choose him. Okay, this guy, he looks strong and tall. He looks like he'd get a lot of rebounds. This guy, he looks like he could hustle. He's fast. I want a fast guy on my team. And if God is not sovereign over everything, if he is not bringing his kingdom to pass sovereignly, then this is how he's going to choose Christians as well. He's going to want the smartest, the most winsome, the most beautiful people to try to bring his kingdom to consummation. But that's not how God chooses. God is sovereign and He will bring His kingdom to pass. He doesn't need anyone. God chose to love you before the foundation of the world. Like when God chose to love you, what skills or talents were you bringing to the table? Well, none because you didn't exist. You had nothing to offer. But God chose to love you. We should revel in this reality. We should praise God for this reality. God loves us. Those he foreknew, 
or those he forechose to love, those he forechose to bring into an intimate relationship with him. God foreknows his children. Secondly, God destines his children to be like Christ. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Brethren. Predestination can also carry some negative connotations and some controversy in Christian circles. But this word should not be controversial or have negative connotations. Predestination is abundantly clear in the scriptures. Believers are predestined. So what is predestination, and what are we predestined for? What does predestination mean? It means to decide or ordain ahead of time what destiny you will have. It means to decide or ordain ahead of time what destiny you will have. He did predestinate. It means to appoint before or to mark out before. It, I mean, it's really the word predestined. It's very clearly the meaning. Predestination is predetermining destiny. So what is the predetermined destiny of those whom God foreknows? Now it's stated in the next phrase. To be conformed to the image of His Son. Those who God foreknows, God predestines to be made like Jesus. Believers are predestined to be made like Jesus. We are to be changed, to be conformed to the image of Jesus. That's our destiny. Why? What's the purpose of this predestination? Next phrase in 29. So that he might be the first fruits among many brethren. Believers are adopted as the children of God. Romans 8.15 says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back again into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. One aspect of the predestination of believers is that they will become the adopted children of God. However, the overarching purpose of our predestination is not our adoption. The overarching purpose is, of our predestination is the glory of Jesus Christ. We are made sons that the Son might be made all the more glorious. Colossians 1.18 says, And He is the head of the body, he, Jesus. The church, He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. The preeminence of Christ is the ultimate goal of our salvation. Yes, the believer is to be made into the image of Christ, to be made like Christ, to be holy, for Christ is holy. This is the goal of predestination. It should be our goal, to be like Christ. However, the last phrase in verse 29 reminds us that the ultimate goal of the predestining of believers is the glory of Jesus Christ. We are made like Christ so that Christ might look all the more glorious. You know, don't you? The ultimate goal of God in saving us is not our salvation. God loves us and He delights in saving us. But the ultimate goal of God in our salvation is His own glory. 
so quickly by way of application. Believer, today you should be pursuing your destiny. Again, what your predetermined destiny is, is to be conformed to the image of Christ. And this destiny is sure. And it is the surety of that destiny that gives us the power to pursue it. As you pursue your destiny, you're being made like Christ and the glory of Christ, your assurance will grow. So, believers are foreloved and forechosen by God. Those that God has foreknown, He has predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ for the glory of Christ. Again, God destines His children to be like Christ. Third, God calls His children with an effectual call. Verse 30. Those whom He predestined, He also called. He called. This is the effectual call of God to those whom He has foreknown and predestined. God calls those He has foreloved and destined to be like His Son. With this action of God, we move into the present. So God foreknew and predestined in eternity past, but He calls people in the here and now. If you're a believer here this morning, you have experienced the call of God. to Paul in 2 Timothy. God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace. And in 1 Corinthians 1, For the Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But, those, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Are all the called, all those who have the gospel preached to them? No. What did we just read? The gospel here preached was a stumbling block to the Jews, and it was folly to the Gentiles. They heard the gospel, but they were not called. But some were, and to them the gospel brought salvation. Not all who hear the gospel will be saved. Not everyone who hears the gospel from our missionaries in China or Scott and Aaron in Africa or Jay and Melissa in Hawaii or Lauren with Hope or Miss Tammy and Miss Mary and the other ones at the Sable Center or Ryan and Nathan at the jail. Not all who hear the gospel in these places will be saved. Not all will experience the effectual call of God, but some will. And this is our confidence in missions, that God is not dependent on our ability in sharing the gospel, but He will call His children to Himself. Many people think of this call in a way that is not biblically accurate. Okay? They think of this call as like me as an 18-year-old out and my dad calling me to tell me to come home. Like That's a call that I can accept or reject. I don't have to answer that call. Now, there are going to be consequences if I don't answer that call, but that's not a call that I, I have to take. I can reject that call. That's how many people think about the way God calls people. That's not what the effectual call of God is like. The effectual call of God is irresistible. 
It's not like my dad calling me. It's like Jesus calling Lazarus. Lazarus was dead. He was dead. He had no power to do anything. And Jesus called out to Lazarus and told him to stop being dead. And Lazarus stopped being dead. He woke up and he walked out of the tomb. When God calls his people, they hear his voice and they follow him. This word here in verse 29 cannot be a general call. If this is a general call, then this whole verse falls apart. If some reject and some accept, this verse can't be true. Because those who because those he predestines, he also calls, and those who he calls, he justifies. So if no one is left unjustified after this call, this call cannot be rejected. God's children are called. They are awakened to the realities of the gospel. They are awakened to see and savor Jesus Christ. God calls his people with an effectual call. Fourth, God's children are justified through the faith that he supplies. Those whom he called, he also justified. Justification. What a glorious reality to be declared righteous. Justification is to be declared righteous on the basis of the imputation of Christ's righteousness to our account. How are we justified? We know as the Bible teaches, and this was the primary truth that was rediscovered by the Reformation. We are justified by faith. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith. Justification is through the faith in Jesus in response to the gospel message. Let's review the gospel message again. When we place our... Sorry. God created mankind. We rebelled against His glory and pursued our own glory. We deserve the wrath of God as the just punishment for our sin. But God, but God sent His Son to live the righteous life that we could not to die this sacrificial death on our behalf so that when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, His righteousness is credited to our account. We are justified. We are declared righteous. We are saved. But how does this occur? You see, so far in this sequence, we've seen that God has been the decisive force. God foreknew you. God predestined you. God called you. Now do you, independent from God, exercise the final and decisive act in coming to God? No, we don't. God is the ultimate and decisive force of our faith that brings justification. You see, if human beings are the ultimate and decisive initiators of our faith, then once again, Romans 28, 29 is not certain. If we are the decisive force of our salvation, of our faith, then some who are called will inevitably not choose to put faith in Jesus. Now, this is absolutely not to say that we have no active role in our justification. We must exercise the faith in Jesus. However, we have to understand that the faith that we have for justification was called into being by Jesus Christ. We were completely dead in our sins with no ability to exercise faith in Jesus until He made us alive and granted us faith to believe in Him. Ephesians 2 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. 
It is the gift of God. You were utterly and completely dead spiritually in your sins. And literally, He called you. He made you alive. He gave you the gift of faith that you might believe in Him. Saving faith is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Later in Romans 8, Paul will ask this rhetorical question. Who can bring any charge against God's elect? The implied answer is no one can bring a legitimate charge against God's elect. Why? Because it is God who justifies. Now how does this relate to our assurance? Why is it important for our assurance that God is the source of our faith in Him? That God called us to Himself and that He justified us? Why is this essential for our assurance? Because if the faith comes from us and we choose God independently, then logically we're the source of our security. If we are the source of our own faith that brings justification, then we're the source of our assurance. If we independently chose to put our intrinsic faith in God, who is to say that we won't change our mind? We're fickle people. But God, God is faithful. And if He called you, and He gave you faith to believe, and He justified you, He will keep you. God's children are justified through faith that He supplies. Fifth, God glorifies all those He justifies. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. He also glorified. What is this glorification? It is the consummation of what we were predestined to in verse 29. To be conformed to the image of Christ that he might be seen more glorious. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. After justification, we are by the power of the gospel and the enabling of the Holy Spirit progressively transformed to be more like Christ. If you're a believer here today, God is changing you. He is working in you. This verse teaches us that those who God has justified are being changed to be conformed to the image of Christ. Romans 8, 17 and 18 says, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. For I consider the suffering in this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. After death, we'll be united to Christ. We'll be completely free from sin and its allurement. We will see the glory of God in its fullness and we will actually become a part of His glory. Part of what makes God so glorious is that those who are redeemed are made to participate in His glory. Our glorifications mean that we won't just see God's glory. Sinners will see God's glory. We won't just participate in it. The creation does this, right? The heavens declare the glory of God. But we will see it, we will enjoy it, and we will participate in the glory of God. All those God foreknew and predestined and called and justified will be glorified. This chain is held together by God Himself. 
God dwells outside of time and space and He sees the end from the beginning. So although for us here today, glorification is still a future event, in God's eyes, He sees it as having already been accomplished. Because He has foreordained it and He will bring it to pass. Again, this chain is unbreakable because it was made by God. God foreknew you. God predestined you. God called you. God justified you. And God will glorify you. No one drops out between justification and glorification. God is the ultimate and decisive force behind the faith that justified you. Therefore, you cannot lose your justification because it was God that justified you. Our glorification is as secure as the Word of God. If you believe the Bible, you can have assurance that if God has justified you, then He will glorify you. Two implications this morning. One, if you're here this morning and you've not placed your faith in Jesus Christ and His work on the cross, the gospel is calling you this morning to repent and believe in the gospel. God is calling you this morning, come to Jesus. Nothing in this text negates the message of the gospel. It says, come to Jesus for forgiveness and salvation. John 3, you all know it. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Whoever, whoever believes in Him, the Gospel is calling you. Come to Jesus. And I say, but what about everything you just said about being called? If you have faith to believe in the promise of God, you are called. God is calling you. Listen to Romans 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who who sent me draws him. So once again, we see that God calls His people to Himself and this calling has to occur prior to justification. But just three verses later in John 6:47, we read this, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Whoever believes. If you place your faith in Jesus Christ this morning, you will be justified. Come to Jesus. And now for believers, I think we have to ask this question. You might say, so I believe, I really do, that if I am foreknown, then I'm predestined. And if I'm predestined, then I'm called. And if I am called, then I am justified. And if I am justified, then I'm going to be glorified. But how? How do I know that I am foreknown? Do you believe? Do you have faith? I'm not asking, did you say a prayer? Did you make a profession of faith? I'm not even asking you this morning, do you remember a specific time when you believed? I'm asking you this morning, right now, do you believe? Do you have faith? If you do, based on this text, you can and should have assurance. Now, faith is is a gift from God. And if we have faith, if we say we believe the gospel, one aspect of belief, if you believe something, you will act as if it is true. If you believe in the name of Jesus, if you have placed your faith and hope and belief and trust 
in the saving work of Jesus on the cross, you have justified. You have been justified. And if you have been justified, if you believe the gospel, you will act as if you believe that Jesus Christ is God and that the New Testament has laid the path of life for the believer. Faith alone saves, not acts. But saving faith produces actions and affections that evidence the faith. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those who he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. A big idea this morning is that our salvation is as secure as God is faithful. Our salvation is as secure as God is faithful. If we believe the Scripture that we can have total assurance, if you are a believer, God Himself has secured your salvation from eternity past to eternity future. How should we respond to this? With amazement and thanksgiving. With worship and glad-hearted assurance. We should have assurance. If you're here this morning and struggling with assurance for whatever reason, rejoice in the truth of Romans 8, 29 and 30. Praise God for the realities of these verses. Rest in the assurance that God is giving you from these verses. Rest in the assurance of these verses. Rest in the truth from these verses. Rejoice in the truth from these verses. This is how Paul responded to these truths. In closing, I want you to read with me the way that Paul follows up these amazing realities that God foreknew us, that He predestined us, that He called us, that He justified us, and that He will glorify us. This is how Paul responds. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written... For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Father, we thank You.
we thank you for the truths of Romans 8, 29 and 30. We thank you that we can have assurance, Lord. And I pray that you would help us this morning, Lord, to rejoice in and to worship you for the assurance that you give us through your word and through Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.